when I say the phrase working with heart, what do you think about? To work with heart or working with heart. We have an interesting relationship in America with our work. And some of us love what we do and we can't get enough of what we do. We want to constantly be doing more of it. It's a natural thing for us. And then others of us, maybe because of the role that we're in or maybe because of a variety of different things, that we would love to be on an eternal vacation. If that could just be true and you had margin for the rest of your days, you would be thrilled with that. Still more of us, if the idea of having a cleared schedule just kind of starts to make you uncomfortable, like what would I even do? How could I live with that? You love having project after project on your list and more and more initiatives to be invested in. We're all in different places with our work. And they say about former CEO of GE, Jeff Immelt, that he worked for 24 years straight, 100-hour work weeks. And even more recently, the CEO of Yahoo now, Marissa Mayer, she is legendarily known for her days at Google working 130 hours a week, sleeping at her desk, trying to get ahead, and ultimately landing that CEO role at Yahoo. And we have a whatever-it-takes mentality when it comes to our work, and it is the American way that we're going to do it in our own strength and whatever it takes. And I would invite you as we go into this passage today, and it's a unique passage I would invite you to consider and be sobered with what's here and consider what is it that God designed me to do and how is it and what his purpose is for work and for the work that is in our lives. And my prayer for you all week has been that God would fill you with great hope as we leave today and encountering his word there. And so the big idea today is to work with hope. And I just invite you to grab your Bibles if you have them there, and if you don't have one, you can uh, grab the one in the seat back in front of you. will be in Colossians 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. So don't panic. It's not too many verses. It's a handful of verses here today. And that Bible there on page 984 and 985 in your seat back, as well as the Ridgewood Church app. And so you can download that. Go to Media, Sermon Notes, and then Today's Date. And you can track along. We create an outline there for you. And you can even take notes in the app if you so desire. So let me read these verses to us and then we'll jump in and see what the Lord would say. So verse 22 of chapter 3. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word to us today. And just to give you a little context, if you're just joining us, we've been going through the book of Colossians over the last few months. And over the last couple weeks in particularly, we've been looking at the, uh, the modes for Christian household or the conduct for living in a Christian household. And so we'll go to the third part of that today. But two weeks ago, we saw what marriage is to look like. And so husband and wife, how do we relate to each other in that sort of way? And then last week, we saw how do parents relate to their kids and vice versa? What does that look like there? And so it's a little bit different for us culturally, but in their day there was slaves that served masters and they were within the home. And so Paul's speaking to that specifically here and what proper order and authority are in the home. 
And so we're going to kind of lay out a context for masters and slaves, and that's where we start today in just exploring what is the relationship that slaves are to have to their masters and vice versa. And that'll give us a little context for the rest of the passage as we go through today. It's critical that we understand that marriage and parenting were God-given institutions, that God created those relationships. And for us here, we understand that slavery is a man-made institution. So I want to make that separation clear. And that it's regulated in Scripture, slavery is, but it's not commended in Scripture. So we've got to contrast that with the things that God did give, which is family and marriage. And there's a lot challenging here, both then and now. And Paul could have just said, hey, to everyone, slaves, go be free and run. Run away and find your freedom. But because of the underlying message here, we know that he's speaking to the fact that slavery is a wicked thing. But had they run... In their culture, it would have brought on undue strain and challenge and even death if they were to revolt. So historically, slaves were victims of a political and economic war, and they were seeking power. And so that's how they came into the the place that they were in. To be enslaved, it was due to war. They were victims of war. And there's a strong belief that many of the slaves in the church at Colossae Uh, were participants, regularly participating in the gathering as they came together. So it's a great opportunity for Paul to say, hey, all of these slaves here to the rest of the brothers and sisters in the gathering, they're equal recipients of the gospel. It would be challenging for the rest of them to hear, but it's a great testimony that they're equal recipients. We also know that Paul had a relationship with one slave in particular named Onesimus, And you can read about that in the book of Philemon. And so he's writing to Philemon. It's a great book, by the way, if you just want to get an easy one under your belt. One chapter, 25 verses. If you want to set a goal today, read Philemon. You can go for it. Get through it in a few minutes. But in that, he's saying to Philemon, Paul's writing him and saying, Hey, Onesimus was with you in Colossae. He escaped, and now he's in Rome, which is where Paul met him. And he said, He's a guy that's been transformed. He's encountered Christ, and he's different And so now I believe that he's going to be helpful to you, and I'm going to send him back to you in Colossae. So receive him. When I send him to you, receive him just as you would a brother. And Paul takes it a step further and says, receive him just as you would me. So he's continuing to level the playing field. And he's appealing against human masters and points out that, hey, there's actually Jesus who's the master over all. And he's doing what he could, Paul was, to pave the way for each one of us as Christ followers and ultimately for all of us as human beings to see every single person as made in God's image. Also rooted within that is he's saying to the masters in verse 1, hey, guess what? You're slaves too because Christ is over all. If we think about the atrocity of slavery, it's a really heavy thing throughout history and it's impossible for us to really enter in and to put our minds around that. And which one of us in this room could speak to the atrocities on a personal level that so many have experienced. International Justice Mission is a wonderful organization that is seeking now to abolish modern-day slavery. And some statistics from them today on slavery are that it's believed that 40-plus million people are enslaved in some form or fashion in forced labor today. $150 billion a year is generated through human trafficking. 
and that one in four victims of forced labor are children. It's a hard thing to engage in and, and get close to emotionally because it's such a heavy thing. So IJM and organizations like them are seeking to rebuild from the ground up judicial systems that will hold people accountable and that will bring about prosecution and arresting and all of those sorts of things that can get the perpetrators taken care of. But then they're also on the other side, they're providing aftercare for the victims that have been a part of these atrocities for them to receive restoration as Christ works in their life. It's an amazing work that they're doing. And my wife has been a part of a short-term team going halfway across the world to be a part of an area that once was incredibly dark, but the light of Christ has come and come in force. And it's a beautiful thing that's taking place there today. It's hard to engage with a tender heart when it comes to slavery too, because we just can't enter in there. And for some of us, we hold up this shield that keeps us away from God because we say, hey, if things like this, if slavery and human trafficking and all these things can take place, then I'm not going to believe, I could never believe in a God that would allow that to happen. How could I possibly relate to someone in that way personally? And we hold it up as a shield to guard us from having to actually engage in those things. Timothy Keller has a beautiful book, The Reason for God, and there's an extraordinarily helpful chapter on the issue of suffering just entitled, How Could a Good God Allow Suffering? And I would highly recommend that book to you. If you're wrestling through those things or you know people that are, this chapter and many other chapters are just kind of one-offs of addressing different questions. And it's a fantastic book. I would recommend it to you. But he says along these lines of how could a good God allow suffering? He said, some find unjust suffering to be a philosophical problem calling into question the very existence of God. For others, it's an intensely personal issue. They don't care about the abstract question of whether God exists or not. They refuse to trust or believe in a God that allows history and life to proceed as it has. He goes on in that chapter to explore what Christ did in coming for us, that he took on our brokenness and our sin, and his body was broken and bruised for us. He died on the cross. He was rejected by man. And the worst part of all, he was rejected by the Father, that the Father turned his back on him when Christ was bearing our sin and our brokenness and the sin of the world on his body. And Keller continues to say, it can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. The incarnation of Jesus that he would come is an incredible, incredible thing. That he would come and take on our sin and do all that he did. And theologically, they talk about, theologians talk about, there's an already part of that, that Christ came and suffered once for sinners. 1 Peter 3 says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He came once to deal with everything on the cross, but then there's a not yet part of that, that he's coming back for us. And what was done in measure will be completed in fullness when Christ returns. And Revelation 21, 5 says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And at the end of Keller's chapter, he talks about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so, heavy spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movies, or you've had 15 years to do that, and if you haven't read the books, you've had decades to do that, so I'm just going to ruin it for you here. But at the end of the movie, Sam Gamgee, he's the tender-hearted character and one of the main ones, he realizes that he's made it through and survived, and then he sees the hero of the story, his friend, 
and beloved hero Gandalf, and he says to him, is it possible that everything sad could come untrue? Is everything, will everything sad come untrue? And friends, the hope of eternity for us because of what Christ has done and he's bringing restoration and making all things new is that everything sad will come untrue and that God has purpose for us. Regardless of where we are, he has purpose for us. So even in the depth of our greatest pain, that God isn't far off and that he loves us. And Jesus entered in and took that for us. So we needed to go a little deeper here because I wanted to make sure that we understand that Paul, and and most importantly, that God isn't glazing over the situation that the slaves found themselves in. So that's a big picture context for continuing through the passage, that God knows them and he sees them where they are. And he's seeking to address their heart, and that's where we go next in the other part of verse 22, the heart and the inner life. That God's seeking to know us, that he's cultivating a relationship with us in the inner life. And so when the Bible says here, have a sincere heart, we know it's not saying have a sincere cardiac muscle, obviously. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about our mind, our will, and our emotions. It's the guiding force of who we are. It's not just our thoughts, but it's the inner us. It's the inner you, it's the inner me. And that's what Paul is addressing with the Colossian slaves, that there's value here and there's a sincerity for them to be present and responsive. And even in the struggle and the frustrating place that they find themselves in, I would say that to you today too, even in the struggle, if you find yourself in a really frustrating place, to continue to press in because the Lord is at work in in the inner you. It's from our inward life that our outward life flows. Our inward life flows into our outward life. And Samuel, First uh, Samuel sixteen seven. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart that He's engaging with us. He's reaching into and having a relationship with us and forming us from the inside out. Jesus Himself said in Luke six, "The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil." For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside of us comes out. And what's inside of us and what's taking place in us really matters. And the Lord's relating to us in that. And that same word that Jesus used here for heart is the word that Paul's using in our passage today. It's the Greek word cardia, or we get our English word cardio or cardiac from that. Speaking about the heart. And God cares about the health and the things that have affected our hearts. And that's good news for me. That the challenges that I've experienced and the challenges I've brought into the lives of other people, God knows that. And he's addressing and working in my heart. And I just would ask you today, in light of this, and and your inner self, how is the condition of your heart? Have you taken inventory in a while? Have you set aside some extra time when you're spending time with the Lord? Or picking a day where you can just go and really assess, Lord, how is my heart? And for some of us today, we need to really engage that. Today might be your day to do that. And I would encourage you not just to let that be uh, self-reflection that only ends with you knowing the outcome of that inventory, but to go to people around you and say, hey, here's where I'm at. There's people that care about you. Who would those people be? And then engage with them. We love having community groups here because that's a place where we can take inventory and walking alongside other people, we can know each other and care for each other's hearts. How's the condition of your heart? And it's from that as we move into the crux of the passage 
understanding the inner part of us, that now we're to work from that heart, from the inner self that God is appealing to the Colossians, and we have the opportunity in a parallel way to work from our heart. And the help that's needed doesn't come from us white-knuckling our way through life. And I'm from Texas, and people pull up their bootstraps in Texas. You know, we try to do it in our own strength. It's not about that. The help that comes here is from a vision of who you're working for. And it's our vision of Christ that gets us there. And Paul's saying, hey, there's a genuineness to the work and to the way that you come to work with your heart. And the same word used here for obedience that we saw last week in children to parents, Paul's advocating for with the slaves as well, is to be present and responsive in the role that they're in. One commentator points out for in this passage that for children, they're in an inescapable relationship. And some of us with kids may feel that sometimes. Gosh, this feels like an inescapable relationship. But they're in that, and their role as kids, just as slaves are relating to their master, that it's a relationship that's honoring and posturing well. It speaks of working wholeheartedly. And I think for some of us in our culture, that's a hard thing to experience. And I have a good friend of mine that he's about as sincere as they come in every facet of his life. And sometimes it's annoying. Because I tend to be fast-paced and sarcastic. And when he shows up with sincerity, and he's bringing all of himself, and I've only brought a quarter of myself to the thing because I'm focused on my phone or not paying attention. And people like that maybe in your life as well that are so sincere, they cause you to stop. And it's moving because they're wholehearted. And that's what the scriptures are saying to us. And we do that again, not in our own strength, but because of our vision of Christ in working for the Lord, that he is our vision in this. And there's good news for the slaves and the masters, ultimately. And there's good news for us that there is inheritance, reward, and payback. As we go into verse 24 specifically, that there's one side of it that's inheritance and reward together. And then we'll talk about the payback side of it as we see it in this passage. And there is reward. And for Paul coming to the slaves and saying, hey, you may not have your circumstances ever improve in the situation that you're in, but the way that you follow the Lord and seek after him really does matter. And so this is a spiritual reward in nature, and it won't fade away. And so even though their circumstances may not get better, and perhaps that's where you feel like today, that I feel bound. I don't know that my circumstances are going to get better anytime soon. That there's a reward in front of us. And it would have been bolstering for their faith, for the Colossian slaves, because they see something that's beyond what's in front of them. There's assurance that it's going to get better, that there's a beautiful reward for them. I have a friend that runs an international orphan ministry, the beautiful work that they do um, at Orphan Outreach. And he tells the story of going years early on in his ministry there, going to an orphanage overseas and walking into a room and there's dozens of baby beds there all filled with babies and he walks into the room and it's completely silent and it's arresting to him it's stunning to him he turns to the staff person and said gosh you know I thought we'd walk in here and there'd be crying and mayhem and all of that and the staff member said they don't cry because they don't expect anyone to come and I just wonder for us when we think about eternity? Do we expect that there's a reward? Do we expect that Christ is coming, or do we live like we don't care or we don't know that? 
that we're not informed by that. And I would confess to you and say, I believe that with all my heart. The scriptures teach it, and I know that Christ is coming back for me. So many days, though, I live for the moment, and I live in selfish ways, and I live in disobedience to the Lord because I'm not looking at him, and I'm not looking at the eternal reward. Do you believe that somebody's coming back for you, that there's an inheritance and a reward available to you? And the essence of our faith is centered on the fact that we believe that we can come to God for reward. We don't come to him for better morals. We don't just come to him for more provision or for him to bless grandma on her way home from your house or to bless our food. We come to him for reward in all things. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Some passages or some translations say that he's a rewarder of those who earnestly and diligently seek him, that we're coming to God for a reward. It's the essence of our faith. And for those Colossian slaves to know that, that there's something better coming, what an amazing thing to bolster their hope and their faith. And may that bless us and bolster our hope and faith in the Lord this week. The other side of this is the payback part, and it's an interesting thing to consider that God's justice will be full and precise and forceful, that it's the Lord's. We've heard that verse, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so this verse would be comforting to them, and I would think there'd be a little bit of retributional feelings there, or maybe a whole lot, but it's not comforting to them just so that they could be angry about what's taken place, just like God's going to come and do what our big brother would to the bully on the playground for us and take care of business. It's not comforting necessarily in that, but primarily because God's sovereign and they can give their life over to him. They can entrust their life to him to know that he's just and that even in their pain and struggle and challenge that he's good, that he loves them, that he's good for it. And ultimately, as our passage is saying, that Christ is the ultimate master and that he loves them. So what about you today and what about right now? Just to parallel some things in this passage, again, it's a very interesting passage, but to parallel into our work today, let's consider that, that under the banner of your work matters to God. And you might say, hey, thanks, Neil, that's great, you know, that's an inspirational thing, or, or you know, I've heard that a hundred times before, but I would just encourage you to think on a deeper level that God isn't just relating to you when you come and worship on Sundays when we're gathered in here for an hour. He's not just relating to you when you pray at meals or when you read your Bible or pray in your car as you go along. But then in all the aspects of your life, all the domains of where you spend your time, that God's relating to you. And he cares about the details and specifics of your life. And he's relating to you and using your daily work to speak to you, to form you, and to reveal to you what you can be for him and others. That he's given you gifts and abilities to use, not just for yourself, but for the world to flourish. And that he's honored when we use those gifts well. Many have said that work is a part of the curse. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but that, oh, we're so cursed to have to work. But that when, when people say that, they're flipping the events of Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, and getting them out of order. Because before there was ever sin, God had given Adam and Eve a job. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He'd given them a great purpose to live out. And so they weren't just there to stare at each other, but they were there to live out the purpose that he'd called them to. And so when you're working and bringing change in whatever environment it is, wherever it is that you work, maybe you're an engineer and you're making things, 
Maybe you're a builder. Maybe you're a salesperson. Perhaps you're establishing beauty through art as an artist. Maybe you're at home nurturing your kids and your family along and caring well for your household. Perhaps you are an administrative guru and you're bringing organization and order to things. I don't fall in that category, by the way. Um, You're fulfilling God's purpose, though, for your life, and he's pleased. He's pleased when in the mundane moments you're using the gifts and bringing about what it is that you do, and he sees you in that. He gave us those abilities to enjoy him and so that other people would flourish. And the posture that we take in our heart towards our coworkers and towards those in authority over us really does matter. And Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of your life. And oftentimes I think we use that verse to say, I've got to protect my heart. I'm going to build a wall or a castle around my heart to keep all the bad away. And perhaps the application for that can be true. But I also believe that God means for our heart to be flowing into other people and that the health of it isn't just for us to have a healthy heart alone by ourselves, but that the outflow of that will bring health to others, that he means to use that in our life. And he wants to cultivate a healthy heart in us. Does working with heart mean that you put in 100 hours a week? Motives matter in the holistic picture of each of the roles that we're in are really important. Our families matter, and if we were to poll our families, maybe you're in the role that you're in, or many of us in this room are just world-class at the job that we do. We're super invested there, and we're seeking to kill it every day in that role. But if we were to poll our family and our friends, what would they say? Man, she's amazing in this role, or he's fantastic here, but I don't know about the other parts of his life or her life. People-pleasing is a trap for us when we talk about calling and walking and working with heart and what God has called us to, because if we spend year after year doing the thing that other people wanted us to do or feel like we need to or try to push onto us, then are we ultimately following God with heart? And some of us can get to a point of real confusion after half of a career or most of a career doing something that someone else said we ought to do. It's worth taking inventory in that as well and getting people to walk alongside you as you explore how God's wired you, how he's called you. And to be able to move past people-pleasing and only working for when we're seen can only come with Christ as our vision and walking with him. I love the title of that hymn, Be Thou My Vision. What a beautiful thing for as you drive to your job tomorrow and you're pulling up to the parking lot as you walk through the doors as you sit down at your desk or enter in wherever it is that you are that you can just say God be my vision today because I want everything that you've put inside of me to honor who you are and you might be in a position where you're saying hey I don't enjoy my job at all and I just would encourage you to say start with where you are today in worship and the Lord will take you if you continue to walk down that path into greater clarity for what he has for you that we use everything that he's put inside of us. And just as we consider the Colossian slaves in the relationship to their master and how they stuck it out and how they endured, even through difficult and, and horrific circumstances, challenging circumstances, and we consider all those that even today are enslaved all around the world, may that be something that sobers us, but also for us to recognize that God knows and sees and loves them in the same way that where you are today, God knows he loves you and he sees you and that you can work with heart. Let's pray together.